Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Well, this morning, uh, I have the pleasure of getting to continue our sermon series called Obstructions, Inhibitors of the Faith, of Our Faith. And in this series, we are considering the hurdles and hiccups that are prone to get in the way and prevent us from living out the calling and purposes that God has for each of our lives. Pastor Chris kicked off this series a couple weeks ago, uh, first by just trying to set the stage of letting us know about the, the state of the world and really the universe that we live in, and that there is a spiritual war going on all around us. That this life and following Jesus doesn't get to be as smooth as just walking down this straight path that's void of any distractions or disruptions. But that there's an enemy of God, and an enemy of your soul, who's seeking to try to get you to take off ramps, to try to distract you and get you off that path that, that God's called you on. And so that's kind of the, the under the, the foundation of a lot of this, is recognizing that there, there is a tough spiritual reality and that we need God and we need his help in order to overcome that. Last week, we considered another hurdle in our lives and in our faith, a perceived lack of availability to participate in God's mission. We're often too busy or we think that we are too busy or so inward focused that we kind of just check out of God's mission and his plans because we think, man, I, I don't have time for that. I don't have the availability to jump into that rhythm or to participate in this spiritual discipline. And so we often just kind of check out altogether rather than trying to figure out how it works in the context of our life. In that, Pastor Chris pointed us toward the examples of Jesus, the early disciples, and the Apostle Paul, and what it looks like to make ourselves available to God's call and purposes in our lives. Today, I'm excited to continue the series, but before I do, let's pray together. Lord, we are so humbled to come together this morning as a family. I thank you for the work that you have done in reconciling us to the Father. Thank you, God, that we have immediate and intimate access to you this morning. God, we don't stand far off. We don't stand uh, unattached or on our own. But God, you're near to us. You love us. You've sought to be in relationship with us. And so we choose this morning, God, to trust you in that. And we pursue, pursue your truth. We pursue your wisdom so that we can learn what it means to have a continued life in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have heard me preach before, if you are friends with me, spent any time with me, um, there's a good chance that you know that um, my parents split up when I was about 9, 10 years old. Um, most divorces, um, like mine, the one that I was a part of, um, was really messy. And there's a lot of moving parts and, you know, this parent's moving out of the house, this parent's trying to keep the house, all these kind of crazy dynamics and realities that you go through um, as your parents separate and then kind of move on and try to figure out what life going forward looks like. And that's how it was um, for me. When my parents split up, they both stayed local so that we could try to have this kind of rhythm where I could see each of my parents on a pretty routine basis. 
while a lot of families, unfortunately, go through maybe a, a, a system or a setup where it's, you know, you got to wait every couple weeks to see mom or to see dad. You know, my parents fought really hard to say, we're going to both stay local. Um, they actually only lived about 12 minutes away from each other uh, so that we can rotate more and we can see each other's parents as often as we could. My mom moved to a duplex on the north side of Corvallis. Uh, my dad moved into a house in North Albany. And um, I can remember vividly the first time visiting my new house at my mom's. Walking in and feeling like so foreign and so new, feeling so out of place. And but this place is going to be my home. And I can recall being walked through the halls and shown like, okay, Casey, this is going to be your bedroom, and here's the living room, and here's how we've organized the kitchen so far, and this is, this is it. This is what we got for now. And um, as the day went on, you know, as, as you do as a human, I got thirsty, and I approached my mom, and I said, hey, uh, mom, can I have a glass of water? And I don't think I realized this at the time. Um, such a, a simple request was indicating an identity or a feeling that I had deep within myself. I was nine, ten years old. I'm not an infant. I'm not a toddler that needs somebody else's help to go get water. I am more than capable at this point in my life to find a cup, to fill it up, and to refresh myself. But in that moment, I felt like a foreigner. I felt out of place. And so in a place that was supposed to be home, I asked my mom a question about a very basic need. And I'll never forget her response to me. She said, Casey, this is your house. You don't have to ask for water here. It was home, but to me, I felt like a guest. I felt like I was at a friend's house or maybe at a, at a grandparent's house that I don't spend a ton of time with. And I'm having to ask questions about a basic need uh, when I should have the freedom and comfort to just go and do as I choose. I identified as a guest, and so I acted like one. Another quick story, and hopefully a little lighter one. I've always been a big football guy. Uh, I played in high school, and I was always like really awkwardly between uh, different positions. I never really fit perfectly in this role, and I never fit perfectly in that one. I can't remember if it was seventh or eighth grade. I got voted utility player of the year uh, because I, I think I played like every position except quarterback, and um, that was just kind of how it always worked. And in middle school, that was fine, but as soon as I got to high school, you know, that doesn't work so well. You might be able to plug in to one, two, maybe three positions, but to be like wide receiver one game and offensive lineman the next and everything was just not going to work. So I had to make some decisions and I decided that I wanted to try to be a receiver and I wanted to try to be a linebacker, an outside linebacker. And freshman year didn't go very well. I was not quite athletic enough, but I worked really hard and I tried really hard to make it work. But going into my sophomore year, coach pulled me aside and really graciously said, Case, we're so glad you're on this team. You're a great linebacker. But uh, I think that we could find a different role for you on offense. I think that this year, uh, maybe we prioritize trying to put on a little bit more weight and we see how you work out with the offensive line. Yes, me trying to please my coach and wanting to play eventually. Um, I said, sure, okay, we'll do it. Now, my team had these rhythms every Thursday night before our games on Friday that we would do this big team meal together. Parents would come together and they'd set out this big spread of food, big line that everyone would get to go through. And um, there was always a lot of food that you could eat a lot. And I remember this first Thursday night 
team dinner as a lineman, rolling through the line. At the time, you know, I ate like any high school boy a lot, but it was probably just one or two plates, and then I was content and I moved on. But I remember sitting across the table, and a senior offensive lineman looked at me and said, Casey, go back for more. And I said, no, I'm good, man. I'm, I feel full. I'm okay. And he goes, no, Casey, you're an offensive lineman now. We need you to bulk up. That's not just going to happen in the weight room. We need you to eat more, too. So I got up, and I probably had two, or two more plates. <laughs> My identity as an offensive lineman changed how I had to act in that space. I didn't get to just be the same anymore. I had to take on some new rhythms, some new practices. And uh, unfortunately, man, it's kicking some of those eating habits throughout the rest of my life. It's been tough. And I, I blame it on that coach that made me become an offensive lineman. Our perception of identity is powerful. As you take on different roles in your life, there are going to be new actions and results that come because of however you've chosen to identi identify or how you are um, just understanding yourself or your role in a specific situation. Both of these stories, I hope, demonstrate or at least introduce the power of identity, how we identify ourselves in general and then throughout specific environments and moments in our lives determines how we will live and act in them. Identities serve as like a filter by which we see the world around us, thus changing how we will participate in that world because of whatever filter we choose. Every one of us has identity markers on some level or another. Our perception of our identity, I think, can be both seen in like a, a more public and a more personal way. Our sense of public identity takes form in what's a bit more obvious or kind of on the surface in your life. Your occupation, your marital or parental status, your program at school, your political party you belong to other clear identifiers that make you who you are and distinguish you apart from other people. These markers determine, determine how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, uh, your income, what your goals are, who or what you vote for, and so much more about your life. And I think we don't often realize the power of these identity markers until we shift from one to another or take on a new one for maybe a new season. Um, my wife and I became parents just two weeks ago, and you hear a lot going into that season about how, like, everything's changing. And you're like, no, I'm sure. that Yeah, you're right. You're probably right. That sounds great. But you don't really realize it until you step into it, that, like, on every micro and macro level you could imagine, everything's changing. Like, rhythms and routines I've had throughout my entire life, or, or at least my entire adult life, just gone overnight. <laughs> like, I don't have the privilege to do that anymore. Uh, I don't have to, I'm, I'm a morning person. I wake up very early in the morning, and that's been like my me time for years. And now it's my me and Mina time. And, uh, and it's great, and I love it, but it's different. It's changed. Routines and rhythms are, are so, so different now. Um, but... My new identity as a parent means that I have that responsibility. Something's changed in my life, and so I'm taking on these new roles, these new responsibilities. I'm thinking of myself and my, my values and my circumstances and events, my calendar so, so differently in every single way. It's like a brand new filter has been placed over my life that I've never had to live with. Identity markers are powerful. When you dig a little deeper beneath the surface, beneath maybe these kind of public identity markers, you find plenty of deeply personal ones as well. 
Things are, uh, these are things that maybe only a couple people know about you or maybe things that you've not chosen to share with anyone at all. Although they are not public in the sense that they're very recognizable or very obvious or on kind of the surface of your life, uh, they can be equally or sometimes even more powerful. There might be ways that you have labeled or defined yourself because of experiences or circumstances that you've been through. Um, boxes that you've tried to neatly understand certain strengths, weaknesses, passions, interests, expertise. You might have had terrible things done to you by other people, and part of those experiences hangs in your heart now, and it affects the way that you understand yourself and how you participate in certain environments. Our perception of our identity is equally as powerful. Some elements of identity are good, and they're normal, things to hang on to, to utilize, to understand yourself, to recognize and, and know like your responsibilities. Like it's, it's a good thing that I recognize my new identity and responsibility as a father. If I did not, Jess and Nina uh, would deserve someone better and different. Uh, there, there is something good on some level to recognizing the identity markers in our lives. But some things are lies. Some things are perversions. Some things are, you know, truths or, or mistruths that you've believed about yourself because of something or, that, or someone that has happened to you or has said to you or even just yourself that you've deemed or determined is true, my innermost being. These are feelings and labels that you just can't escape. It's a lens in which you view the world around you through. Positive identity markers can end up causing problems for us. We can obsess with certain realities about who we are and the roles that we have throughout our lives that we end up overemphasizing a single aspect or element of our identity as kind of the main thing that defines and drives us. I remember going into college and having never really had to think about politics all too much, um, which I think is like pretty normal. There's probably an aspect of it that was just like ignorant bliss. Like I just didn't care to dive into that world at all. But the, seriously, the demographic of high schoolers, especially when I was in high school, that cared about politics, just very, very small. But there's something that changes when you step into the college environment, especially if you end up on a campus at the University of Oregon, Oregon State, like I was, and all of a sudden, you are introduced to political thought and opinion in a new and overwhelming way. Things that you've never had to think about or process through uh, because you probably didn't even have the opportunity to vote on or anything like that all of a sudden are very critical and very important to a lot of different people. And I can look back on some of my closest friends that I met throughout my freshman and sophomore year um, People who, you know, entered into college without much of this kind of political identity recognition of, of certain values and things. Um, but you look two, three years later who they were at the end of school. It's like completely different people. And I'm not just saying like committed or con more consistent Democrats or Republicans. I, I think on some level we can identify with some of these things in a healthy way. But like these people were obsessed. It became their religion. Their political party, the person they were voting for, was now the Messiah, the savior of the world around them. And it was like, man, these people just a couple years ago, like we were so different. But all of a sudden in this space, whether brought further right or further left, something just changed. 
it wired so many of my friends so differently. And unfortunately, like I said, for people who either went further right or further left, I, I knew a lot of people that loved Jesus, that served in ministry, that cared deeply about participating in God's plans and purposes for the world, that a few years later just become so obsessed with these kinds of things that today I could tell you who they vote for. I could tell you who they won't vote for, but I can't tell you if they're still following Jesus. People that had passion in life for Jesus drowned out because of an identity or an interest like politics. Identities are powerful, and too often we let our false identities dictate our ability to participate in God's plans and purposes in the world around us. I'd like to offer a definition of false identities because that is the title of today's sermon. Uh, False identities manifest as lies that we have received or believed about ourselves, or they are the labels and roles that have been prioritized incorrectly. False identities shape and rewire us as the priorities and passions that come through the worldview of that associated identity override how God has made you to function and to see the world and how to live within it. Our false identities cause us to look more like the world and less like Jesus. We have a problem. We need a new identity, one that's overarching and in priority over any other way that you could label or understand yourself. The world's eyes, the identities that we take on, will fail us. They will draw us into confusion, into shame. It will cause us to step back. We need to recognize a new identity. Near the end of your Bible, you will find three short letters written by one of Jesus' followers named John. The letters are titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, Though it can be confusing because he has a book earlier that says the gospel according to John. Um, But today we're going to read two passages from 1st John. Uh, So if you want to start turning there, if you've got a Bible, feel free to. John was one of Jesus' disciples and was a key figure and apostle for the early church. He was most likely writing this to uh, non-Jewish Christians, a.k.a. Gentiles, in Eastern Asia to encourage them to walk in the way of love and stay faithful in a world where people were beginning to turn away from Jesus. The first passage I'd like to consider is 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 uh, through chapter 3, verse 3, and then we're going to go over to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. You should just have to flip a page or a couple uh, taps on the Version Bible app there, and you'll be right over to the next one. So uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, uh, reading through chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Jumping over to chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this way, we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Here we see John assign a pretty important identity marker to those who are followers of Jesus, children of God. This isn't an original or new thought uh, to John specifically here. Um, and it's actually one that we see all throughout the New Testament. You see Jesus talk about it. Um, you see the Apostle Peter write about it. Um, but it's, it's kind of this theme or this idea that's been building up really throughout even the entire scope of the Bible. Genesis begins with the ideal image of this reality. Adam and Eve physically dwelling with God and having immediate access to him like a father would to their children. God chose to be with humanity so that they could receive wisdom and blessing and purpose from the relationship that they have with him. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, we often look at a passage like that and we say, they just ate a fruit. What did they do wrong here? Well, the roots of the problem was that there was a trust issue. They didn't believe that God's commands were wise enough, were good enough, and they chose to receive their own wisdom and make their own decision. Satan sowed seeds of doubt in their hearts, causing them to question if God's advice and direction was actually true. And so choosing their own wisdom, they disqualified themselves from being able to exist in God's perfect presence because of their sin. And mediation would now be required if God and humans were going to continue on in this relationship that he intended to have with them. After centuries of God graciously relating to people through covenants and promises, he sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, so that the ransom for sin could be paid and justice could be completed. And then Jesus rose from the grave to demonstrate his power over death, promising us an eternity with the Father where we're now restored back to this image like what we saw back in Genesis chapter 1, living with God as our Father who loves us and receives us and guides us and gives us wisdom and direction personally. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 declares this reality. It says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When you are new in Christ, when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive a new identity that marks you forever and always. 1 John 2.28 tells us that because of this identity as children of God, we can have confidence and don't need to shrink back. When we embrace our identity as children of God, we can have confidence as we step into God's plans and purposes in the world around us. When we embrace false identities, it's funny how they end up actually doing the opposite for us. False identities often cause us to shrink back or to lack in confidence in our ability or willingness to participate in God's plans and purposes in the world around us. Here's an example in my own life. As I assess uh, strengths and weaknesses that I believe God's gifted me, um, I can see some things that I think God has 
you know, clearly either identified through the, the practical act of, of me getting to be a teacher or, or maybe me being effective at hospitality when people walk into our home. Um, maybe God's gifted me with something like with prayer. And I can see all throughout my life the ways that God has, has used and fostered those gifts in my heart, um, even since I was just a little boy. Um, but I can also look at a lot of weaknesses. And I can point out some things, and I'm like, oof, I am definitely not gifted in that way. One of the ways uh, that's unfortunately been way too evident in my life and in my heart is that I'm not a very gifted evangelist. I have never been as effective as my ministerial peers, especially when it comes to maybe some of the tools and resources that you would use if we sent you out on campus evangelizing and trying to connect with new students. Um, I've had the privilege of working with and watching some amazing men and women over the years uh, share the gospel and connect personally and get to a point where people are opening up and sharing their beliefs and their backgrounds and their experiences. And after watching so much of that for years, I can just sit back and be like, I don't have it. I don't have it like they do. I'm not, I'm not gifted in that way. I'm not, I'm not strong in the way that so many of you are strong in being able to communicate and share the gospel with a stranger or with a non-Christian in that sense. So there's the identity. I'm not a gifted evangelist. That's a fine realization to recognize about myself and to maybe say, yeah, no, that might not be your top strength. That might not be your primary calling. Um, But here's where it turns into a false identity. Because I'm not a gifted evangelist, It does not mean that I'm not called to evangelize or share the gospel with people around me. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 does not say, those of you who have been gifted with evangelism, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what my heart and mind want to say because it's uncomfortable for me. It's hard for me to step into those spaces because I know I'm not as effective. I know it's not my primary gifting, My heart wants to say, I'll just stick to what I'm good at. I'll work on small group curriculum for next week, and um, I'll let Chris and Elisa and Zoe and other people go on campus and make all these really great connections with people. And it's fine if evangelism doesn't look exactly in the way that maybe a tool you've been introduced to or, or a method or idea. It's okay if you don't fit a specific box on something like that. But just because it's not my strength does not negate the fact that I've been called to that. That I've been called to connect with people who have not heard and believed the gospel and to share it with them. To care deeply about my neighbors, to care deeply about students on campus, people who might wander into these walls, to share my testimony, to ask about where they have been and to declare the gospel to them. I don't get to just bow out of that because it's a weakness in my life. God's call supersedes that weakness. And so my false identity tells me I need to step back and not participate. But God says, no, no, I can use you for this. The truth is that God has called me to it. And it might not be how I spend all my time or the way that I best bless or work within the context of our church, but it's something I'm called to. And it's something that God wants to empower me for if I trust him to go out and do it. Because when you and I embrace the identity as a child of God, an heir to the kingdom of heaven and participants 
in God's ministry and plan, you realize the potential of what God can do in and through you instead of trying to limit or disqualify yourself because of a way that you identify or understand your condition or your heart or how you operate. Many have put together uh, this list that I want to show on the screen as like a helpful illustration um, for how the, the power of God has worked with people with kind of rough past or backgrounds or, or presents. Um, if you're new to the Bible, there's a lot in here that we just don't have the time to unpack. Um, but if, if you're familiar with the scriptures, um, these, are, these are some figures of the faith. These are giants. These are people that continued God's mission on, and these are some of the things that they faced. Abraham and Sarah were too old. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses was a murderer and couldn't talk well. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Peter denied Christ. Martha was a warrior. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Paul was a murderer. Timothy had these ongoing health issues. You do a character study of nearly anybody in the Bible, and you will find reason to disqualify them from the plans and purposes that God used them for in their life. By God's grace and through his power, those who are in Christ have been received as his children, have been empowered with the Holy Spirit, and are not limited or held back because of the experiences or conditions that you have. Instead, they are empowered and enabled by the Spirit to courageously and confidently participate in God's plans and purposes around them. Now, for many of us here today, it's easy to see something like this, a list like this, and it's, it's encouraging, it's cool. Um, you, you can hear these biblical principles. But yeah, no, I can be confident. I don't have to shrink back from opportunities to, to participate in God's mission and plans. Um, but if we were to take an honest look at our lives, we might find that uh, these false identities have been chipping away at us more than we realize or understand. And the truth is that it's not always easy to identify some of these uh, false identities. When you have been wired a certain way for long enough, it's very challenging to identify what needs to be changed or how you might have allowed yourself to become over time. We know that there are plenty of things we shouldn't let run our lives, but sometimes we just end up so deep in, in this aspect or in this space, in this circumstance, um, that we don't even realize how much we've taken on a false identity and let, let it run our lives. We need to learn how to assess and uh, assess our identities and evaluate whether we have a healthy relationship with them or if they've become false identities. And I have a few thoughts on how we can do that today. First, we should take an evaluation of those public identifiers that you carry in your life. Those include your job, your marital status, the program you are in school, all the things you'd put in your Instagram bio or the things that you would share with somebody if you were meeting them for the first time. We have to take an honest look at those roles and responsibilities in your life and see if we have put our identity as followers of Jesus and as a child of God in the backseat compared to those things. We have to be willing to ask ourselves, is my identity in Christ first and foremost in my life or is it just a part of it? Because if it's just a part of it, you and I will walk into any work environment, situation within the walls of your homes or your classrooms, and we'll compromise. We'll not walk in the fullness of God's plans and purposes because your interests are conflicted. But when your primary and overarching identity is rooted in Christ, everything changes. 
One second, you're a student at the University of Oregon or Bushnell because you want to get a good future and because you want to set yourself up to get a good job and to uh, have a really good long life of having good provisions and being able to provide for a family and all these great things. But then the next moment, God changes something and you've become like a campus missionary who loves your campus so much, whose heart is broken by the realities of the students around you, the things that they're turning to. Next thing you know, you're not just an employee or an employer just trying to get by and trying to get work done, but you're seeing every day and every responsibility as an opportunity to glorify God and continue furthering his mission and extending his kingdom through what you do. You're not just a parent or a spouse because it sounds fun or because it's good and it's a thing you should do because in life we just start families and we, we just do this thing. Um, but you do it because God's called you to it because he wants to be glorified in and through it and you're going to change the world through your family. When our identity is rooted in Christ, every other role and identity in our lives conforms to his way. The second step of assessing identities is to seek out those that are a bit more personal and beneath the surface in our lives. To address the pain and the doubt and the concern that hinders you from being able to take place in God's plans and purposes that he's called you to. There's no lack of uh, what this might look like in your life. You might be consumed by the reality of your sin. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you just can't shake or you just can't shake this feeling of being inadequate because of your failures. You know, in the end, God loves you and he forgives you and all this, but you don't feel like you can take next steps in participating in what God's missions and plans are for your life and for the world around you because you don't feel worthy of it. So maybe if I can shake this someday, then I can participate. You might feel held back by a physical or mental condition Rather than asking God to use your situation for his good and for his glory and in the unique and powerful ways that he can, you've just stepped back completely because you don't think he can use you. You might have gone through a horrific pain caused by another person and you've allowed the sin of someone else to keep you from taking on the fullness of who Christ has made you to be. I think we often recognize these identities, these kinds of things that are beneath the surface. Um, maybe when we're in the text, when we're, we're jumping into the scriptures and we run into something that's a little bit more difficult for us to process or believe than, than something else. Like it's, it's easy for me to love this verse and to love this principle and this theme throughout scriptures, uh, but this one, I just, I'm not down with that one. I'm, I'm not really interested in pursuing this I got some kind of hang up or hurdle with it. Sounds good, all right, but maybe not for me. Um, to use an example that I shared earlier, evangelism is, is often one that comes up with people. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I, I don't want to evangelize because I don't want to force my beliefs on someone else. I'm not going to just like push them or shove them into believing what I believe. They should be able to go believe and do whatever they want. The truth is, there's probably a story behind why you feel that way. There's probably a circumstance, maybe in your own life, someone close to you, that all of a sudden, now you approach that principle or that belief, that command of God, that's really challenging for you to accept and to walk into because you've not dealt with whatever is kind of beneath the surface. 
that instance that, that caused pain or disrupted your ability to believe that that's something that is good and that you should be participating in. We have to be willing to dive in to our hearts, into our minds, and to explore and unearth these things. You might be able to do this uh, through the help of a friend, um, but oftentimes this kind of work comes out through the loving relationship of a mentor, of a pastor, of a counselor. As you get to work through and address these things in your heart, you get to find on the other side. No, God has said this is good. And I had some pain and I had some things I had to work through to get there. But it was right. It was true. And it was worth working through it. Finally, the last way that we can identify false identities is by doing life with one another. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. One of the best ways to never expose the deep and personal false identities in your life is to live in isolation. To not let anyone in, to keep it to yourself, and think that you can figure out all the problems and hiccups and hurdles and identities in your life. But when I know you, and you know me, and we live in this context of love that Christ has called us to, to show one another love, there's a freedom in being able to support and care for, for each other. As we open up about ourselves and let people see the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives, we create an opportunity for other followers of Jesus, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and can encourage and build us up, speak life to us, to help us see what others, to see what maybe we often can't see for ourselves. I've been so blessed. You know, Pastor Chris isn't just my uh, boss and my pastor, um, though he is those two things, um, but we have become good friends as well because of the kind of access that we have given to each other to speak on these kinds of things in our lives. We ask each other difficult questions, challenge statements or assumptions made, and check in on the condition of each other's hearts. Because I know that Chris sees things in me that I often miss, and I see things in him that he's prone to miss. When we are committed to one another, we have the opportunity to expose and refine false identities, to call each other up into what God has for us so that we can live and walk out in the fullness of everything that Jesus has for us. You need consistent and intentional friendships with other followers of Jesus who can call you out and lift you up as you pursue Jesus together. It's only in the context of community that we will expose and refine our identities Worship team, you can come on up. Pastor Chris sent me a video this week. Uh, it was an Instagram reel uh, that I, he knew I was preaching about this topic of identity, and uh, it, it, it spoke well to this. The context was some sort of conference or leadership summit, and the pastor or, or this church leader made this compelling assertion. He said, the reason why the world has so many issues around the problem of identity is because it starts in the church. We live in a world right now where everyone around us is scrambling for identity markers that will bring them fulfillment and peace. People unhappy in their marriages, their jobs, with their, pos with their possessions, their careers, their callings. And we live in a moment where society is telling anyone and everyone to go pursue whatever you think it would be that is going to bring you that fulfillment that you crave. I'm watching my generation and younger especially be just ran reckless, blown back and forth by the winds of chaos and confusion because there's no stability in false identities. 
it breaks my heart to watch some of my friends as they pursue some sense of identity or purpose. It's like talking to them a month or two later, I feel like they're a completely different person. There's no sort of stability. There's no kind of just rootedness or confidence or peace in their life. They're always scrambling. They're always searching. The pastor in this video spoke to and begs the question, will the world find the same kind of identity instability when they look inside the walls of the church? If we want to be a safe haven for those in our city, we need to be willing to deal with the false identities in our lives too. We need to be willing to heal from pain, to turn from sin and idols, and we need to take on the confidence and authority that we have in Jesus Christ alone. That's available for you today. You have a loving father who desires to rescue you, who desires to redeem you from the insecurity and shame that you feel and you experience every day because of the false identities you've attached yourself to. He wants you to feel confident and aware of how loved and cared for you are, to know that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he will empower you for anything and everything that he's called you to. And as a child of God, you can have confidence and peace that in everything you do, he is with you and wants to work in and through you to continue extending his kingdom. As we close, I just want to extend an opportunity for you to respond this morning. If today you want to begin the process of shedding false identities in your life, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand in a moment. There's nothing magical about this act, but it is powerful personally as you respond physically to something that's happening inwardly. So if you are ready to take on the full and real identity as a child of God this morning, to cast off false identities, it's available for you today in the name of Jesus. Fears or concerns you've held on to for far too long, roles and responsibilities in your life that have made faith take the back seat wherever you're at today. If you want to take on for the first time or maybe just as a reminder or encouragement today, it's available for you in Christ that you are a child of God. So if we close our eyes, if that's you today, please raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you. God, the world has just been so reckless with our hearts. God, there's so many things that we are striving towards or running to. God, we're desperate for fulfillment. And we humble ourselves today and admit that false identities are getting in the way of the life that you've called us to have in Jesus. We repent meaning we choose right here and now to turn away from false identities and to take on what's available in Christ. Lift us from the pits of insecurity, of instability and shame that these false identities have left us with. Give us the fullness of life and peace that is only found in the finished and complete work of Jesus. The one who lived the life we could not live, who died the death we deserved, and who rose in power so that we can have eternity with you. It's he who has called us into this mission, into the life of purpose and joy, so we can choose to walk in Christ and receive our ultimate and final identity only in his name. We take on victory and authority and confidence and peace that has not been earned by anything we did, but something that's freely received because of the work of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.